Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Rain, rain, go away. Come back next year when we have a roof. It's the French Open Week 2 Catch-Up. Let's play. Hello everyone and welcome to The Passing Shot, your tennis catch-up podcast. This week on The Passing Shot, we're going to be looking back on the French Open week two. We've literally just had uh, the finals day for the men, finals day yesterday for the women. So we're going to be rounding all of that up, doubles, juniors, wheelchair uh, and any other kind of gossip that has kind of all the fallout basically from uh, this second week of the tournament. So in order to do all of that, of course, I am Joel, the Wandering Wildcard, and I'm joined by the self-confessed Queen of Clay, Kim. Kim, how are you doing? Hello. <laughs> I'm extremely happy right now because, as many of our listeners know, I'm a big Rafa fan. And um, unless you've been, I don't know, hiding in a bush all day, Rafa has won his 12th Roland Garros title uh, in a rematch of last year's final. Um, I don't know if you saw much of it, Joel, but it was a, well... I was a bit stressed the first two sets and then sets three and four were much more kind of easygoing. And I think team just kind of, I don't know, he, he realized the, uh, the uphill battle he was going to face to try and win three sets against Rafa on clay. Um, especially as he'd been playing what that's, this was the fourth day in a row that he would have been on court. So not exactly ideal. Uh, but that, well, that we'll get onto the scheduling, uh, debacles a bit later on. But yeah, very happy. Um, I can't believe it, really. I remember many moons ago watching Rafa, I think, you know, get his fourth and fifth, thinking, oh, I don't know how many more he could get. And then now here we are at 12. It's it's crazy. I mean, going into the tournament, obviously, Nadal probably, you know, would have admitted he didn't pick up as many titles as as he possibly would have liked. Obviously, lost to Dominic team, I think, in Barcelona. But he still has kind of shown that give him a clay court, give him best of five set tennis at Roland Garros, he is still the king. Yeah, and, you know, team played well today. You know, that the start of the match was sensational from both players. It was it was really amazing tennis. But I think, you know, it just kind of ran away from him. And he just, I think, I think you know, Rafa was very complimentary of, of team in his post, um, you know, the presentation afterwards on court saying, you know, I think, you know, team will win this title in the future. And I have to say, I do think he's right. I think if there's anyone who's going to be like the natural successor um, to to Rafa's kind of clay court, not king, but, you know, maybe a prince, I think Dominic team is uh, a, a good option. I mean, obviously Djokovic is amazing on clay as well. 
And, you know, it could well have been a, a Novak Rafa final, as most people had been predicting. But, you know, team managed to come through in that sort of delayed semi-final on the Saturday. And, um, yeah, I think actually Rafa would have been quite glad that uh, Djokovic wasn't down the other end on uh on Sunday today, even, you know, even though team had beaten him in Barcelona, it's a bit different when you, you know, you're at a slam, as you said, with five sets instead of, you know, your best of three like you do in uh, in the rest of the, of the year. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really telling because if you actually look at the, the scoreboard, you know, the first two sets were very competitive, you know, 6-3, 7-5, kind of split uh, split uh, between between them. And you know, in a best of three set match, I think, you know, team's game on a clay court, it, it does well in those situations. But the third set and the fourth set kind of ran, you know, ran away from him. And, and I, in order to kind of take it up to a next level, he's going to have to find that consistency that can, you know, match with the very best from set one to, you know, potentially set five. And, you know, he's got that in his locker. And I think, you know, he showed that with, you know Novak Djokovic doing that over two days, but you know it was just it was just a bit too much of a tall order to do that against Nadal in the men's final. I was very impressed with your prediction, Joel, because at the start of the year you said team was going to win Roland Garros, and I was thinking, oh gosh, <laughs> Joel could be onto a jammy one here. He could get get it right, but um, I was quite pleased you didn't. Um, <laughs> it was a head to head between us, wasn't it? Because obviously you're a big Nadal fan. I had team in my uh, early predictions uh as my kind of as my favorite who i thought could break the kind of um break the stronghold by uh by natal on the french open but yeah what it, it wasn't it wasn't to be but uh he did put in a you know really good performance throughout the kind of throughout the two weeks i think it kind of shows that he he grew into the tournament and you know he did have a a couple of long matches kind of in that first week but once he got into that second week you know it kind of it kind of clicked and you know he found his momentum and he was really able to kind of compete with you know with the very best you know players on on a tennis court yeah and and going back to Rafa you know he just had a sort of fairly breezy run through the tournament didn't he you know he lost the set to Goffin in I think the third round but other than that he wasn't really challenged and yeah, he didn't have the maybe the toughest draw compared to some of the other players, but he did what he had to do. And, you know, once again, kind of <laughs> undefeated um, in Roland Garros. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, each each title now means even more, more and more to Rafa because, you know, we don't know how many more he's going to get or if any. So it's, uh, you have to savour the moment while we can. But let's go back and look at the semis that we had. So it was actually the first time since the 2012 uh, French Open that we had Djokovic, Nadal and Federer in the semi-finals all together. So it's actually kind of crazy it's been that long. And um, also it was the first time that we had the top four seeds uh, in the in the semis of Roland Garros since 2011. So um, and what did you make of the of the Roger Rafa semi-final? You know, Fedal 39, uh, people were building it up, you know, how good is Federer going to be against Rafa? You know, he hasn't played on the clay for many years. And, uh, you know, I think he had, he had, was testing out a new forehand, uh, backhand, even people were saying that that was going to perhaps make a difference. But I mean, it, it didn't really have, have much of an impact, did it? I, yeah. I think I, w- I was watching that match at work and, and <laughs> I thought, 
these were some, these those were some of the worst conditions. I feel like a you know a Federer Nadal match had been played in, and I think you kind of you know when you look at this rivalry and you think kind of you know when they step on a tennis court, uh, you know you almost expect it to be perfect. You know, perfect tennis, perfect conditions. You know, per- perfect atmosphere. But you know, I, I think that semi final just showed like you know it was just such a as much we it was about kind of the the kind of the continuing the rivalry i think the conditions kind of brought out you know it, it added a different element i don't think we necessarily it, it added definitely a different element to fidal 39 because yeah the the wind particularly was uh, atrocious and i don't think it, you know it didn't i don't think it came across you know when you watch it on tv but kind of looking at the spectators there you know all kind of uh, in there, you know, jumpers and having got their brollies at the side and, you know, wrapping up warm. It was just kind of a, it, it felt a bit, it almost felt a little bit subdued. Yeah. And I mean, some of the pictures, you know, you could literally see the dust just like blowing all over like Roger and Rafa. It's like they're in a sandstorm. So, I mean, it's quite epic in terms of that. But yeah, I guess it prevented them from ever being able to play their best tennis. And Rafa handled the wind well, Federer perhaps less so. Um, so yeah, it certainly wasn't the classic that we were hoping it, it perhaps could have been, but, um, you know, we are la- our last episode for anyone who hasn't listened yet is looking at the Federer and Nadal rivalry. So it's a real nice trip back down memory lane, uh, with, with our, we're joined by a special guest, Dan Rubenstein, who co-hosts, um, the podcast Sports Wars. Um, so yeah, if we were, hoping perhaps for for like another epic match but not to be um and what I did find um interesting was you know although the wind was was bad neither player made much of a a fuss over it they kind of just got on and did the job um you know it's the same conditions for both of them but then we saw in the Dominic team Novak Djokovic semi-final which came after Djokovic was a bit agitated about the conditions uh team not so much and they had you know they went off for the rain came back on and then eventually they went off again and and that was it play was called for the day which became a very controversial decision because I think after maybe half an hour or so the rain stopped and it was blue skies for the rest of the evening so everyone was saying why on earth did they stop they could have totally finished this match tonight and not come back tomorrow so that led to a lot of controversy on you know, Twitter and in the media. What did you make of that, Joel? What's your take on that? Well, first thing, says, I think Novak Djokovic did not handle the conditions as well as his opponent. He just did not like playing in those conditions. And, you know, watching on TV, it felt like, you know, he was looking, he was looking for a get out clause. He was looking for, potentially looking for a reason to kind of, um, you know, come back another day to kind of to finish it. Then, ideally, in better conditions. Um, from kind of what I've uh, what, what I've heard is that you know the a lot of people saying that kind of Novak kind of pushed you know the organisers into a corner about I'm not going out and and playing in you know gale force winds and I don't I don't think it was like that. I think it was kind of more of a you know I think the organisers would have spoken to both of them and you know said look. Here's the weather forecast. It's not looking great. Winds are, you know, up to 90 kilometers an hour, something, you know, crazy, crazy kind of, uh, crazy speed winds. Um, let's just kind of come back tomorrow and, and finish it then. So I think kind of both players were probably kind of, um, you know, 
aware of the situation and kind of agreed okay yeah I think it makes sense to, to come back tomorrow but you know it was a bit surprising that I think you know the forecast did have blue skies they could have probably finished that match in the night if they wanted to and you know if I'm being honest I think they I feel like both players probably should have or hopefully both players would have wanted to do that they would have whoever was going to win it they would have wanted that that day off you know to recuperate for that men's final because no one wants to play you know consecutive day te- days of tennis at the bitter end of a grand slam especially when you've got Rafael Nadal uh you know with a day off ready to kind of fit and fresh ready to face you in the final yeah because even when they came back on the Saturday they played what the best part of of best part of three sets didn't they and it could have I mean imagine if on the fifth set it'd gone on and on and on you know it's the only grand slam that doesn't have like a an end point in the fifth set if you like so that would certainly would have been less than ideal preparation you know going into the final on the Sunday and then obviously some people were saying oh but the final should then be moved to the Monday to allow sufficient rest and I was just thinking well that's very unlikely considering I don't know the the French Tennis Federation have already made some perhaps some howlers of decisions I mean I guess they were doing the best that they could with the forecast that they had but I don't know maybe they should check where they're getting their forecasts from because it was wildly different to reality in the end (laughs) Um, I think both players did say in their press conference that yeah it was a fair decision so um, I think Novak said you know, there was an umbrella flying around on the court. And was that therefore not proof that, you know, it was way too windy and perhaps dangerous? But, you know, what I felt was the the worst outcome of that was the fact that, yeah, again, the women's final, similar to Wimbledon last year, the women's final was then put back. We didn't know whether they would definitely start at 3pm uh, local time. So they were waiting around and obviously they didn't start till, what was it, like an hour later, I think around four o'clock. And it just felt like, again, the women were being sort of put as a sideshow. Um, and it was, you know, the, the, the knock-on effect as a result of that decision just affected the women. Again, it always seems to be the women play, you know, the women's side of the draw that is impacted unfairly on the scheduling. And obviously we saw that on the Friday with the women's semis being played on Suzanne Longlon and Simone Mathieu, which meant that only like one man and his dog was there to see like Joe Conta, for example, in the semi-final. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, whether um, the weather wreaked havoc with the, you know, with the schedule, with the scheduling. Yes, the French Open doesn't have a roof. And it, I feel like this tournament almost paid the, pro- paid the yeah. price for that. They will have a roof. They will have a roof next year. But again, kind of the scheduling was just a bit of a nightmare. You know, women's semifinals being played at the same time, you know, on on outside courts. <laughs> um you know at like at like 11 a.m it was ridiculous really wasn't it I mean yeah it didn't help and as you said I I do kind of think you know the more more and more these kind of situations arise you know they've happened at Wimbledon before as well you know with the the women's final again I think Wimbledon last year or the year before there wasn't a set time and it's kind of all these things it just kind of always points to you know men's the men's tennis, the men's matches are almost kind of considered a little bit more elevated than the, than the women's tennis, which is, you know, it might not necessarily be, you know, intended, but to kind of the regular fans, the regular spectators, you know, it, it doesn't look, it, it, it doesn't look good. No, and also it's like, how can, you know, women's tennis get more of a profile and get the attention that it deserves when 
the organizers and the scheduling is constantly putting it on the back foot it's it's just you know it's not given the coverage that it deserves and therefore it's like a a vicious feedback cycle where people will know more about the men's game and will follow it more because that's where they see you know they see more men's tennis it's, it's more visible around the world so it's kind of like just this sort of inequitable situation going round and round on itself what i thought was just the worst uh, decision was to ticket the men's semi-finals individually, which I believe they've actually done for like maybe the last two or three years. I don't think it was new this year, but obviously because of the weather and everything, it, it you know became a big talking point. Um, the fact that they only individually ticketed the men's semi-finals and not the women's for me is like an overtly sexist thing. Um, you know, you're clearly treating treating it you know two separate levels, and I think it's just a money making enterprise isn't it to get more income from the French Tennis Federation I'm assuming it's so they can pay for the roof and all of the you know other necessary uh, ground improvements but it's just because they had let you know 15,000 people buy a ticket for each of the men's semis they really had to honour that they had to put both men's semis on Chatrier meaning the women were just yeah as you said shunted off to an outside court to play a semi-final at like 11am and it also meant that Von Drusheva therefore like never had played a single point of tennis on Chatrier before the final which I'm sure didn't help her um so I think that fundamentally was was a real issue was the fact that they had ticketed those semis in, individually and I really hope that for next year they won't be doing that um even though yeah if they've got a roof it probably wouldn't um wouldn't come to bite them in the bum like it has this year. But, you know, I really hope if they're going to individually ticket semi-finals, they need to do the same for the women's uh, matches as well, because it's just unfair otherwise. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, and yeah, we should move on to the women because it was a very, very surprising, <laughs> very surprising group of players we had in, in the semi-finals, I think. Um, you know, we spoke about in our week one catch up about the you know the difference between the the men's and the women's draws in that the men's you know all the top 10 seeds were getting through in the women's side I think only three of the top eight seeds got to the the second week and yeah very surprising group of players we got in in the semi-finals for the women yeah and uh, I mean surprising yes but actually if you look at their form and you know coming into the tournament it perhaps wasn't so surprising you know Joe Conda was one of the most informed players in the clay season Von Drusova she had not um done any worse than the quarterfinals in any tournament since the Australian Open so very very consistent uh this year and obviously Barty as well she has I think a very ridiculous win percentage of 86 percent for this yeah for 2019 so she was you know in really good form as well um, and then as for Anderson Mova, obviously up and coming, you know, 17 year old, she won her first title in, in Bogota, um, a few weeks before. So, you know, in hindsight, perhaps not that surprising, but yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think anyone would have predicted those four at the start. I mean, for the, for the final, as we said, you know, Von Drusova, she was the first time playing on Chatrier. So the final itself, Barty against Von Drusova was very one-sided, um, Von Drusva, I thought was made to look pretty ordinary and, and Barty just kind of completely outplayed her, had an answer for everything, you know, was, was supreme and totally deserved to win her, her first singles grand slam, I should say, cause she did win the US open doubles last year with Coco van der Wey. Um, so yeah, Ash Barty is now going to, well, she's moving to number two in the world 
and uh, she's only actually 137 points from from number one. So uh, I think in a couple of weeks, you know, she might be uh, she might be number one, and and it's all changed, isn't it? All change again at the top of the women's yeah. game. I've well, Kim, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Barty has come. To the party. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of Barty uh, party. <laughs> but um yeah she um had a had a great tournament you know i look at that score line six one six three uh, it was the score line i was kind of hoping was going to be the semi-final between contour and, oh, and von Drusen. i know, <laughs> but, I know. Uh, yeah but um yeah barty very good i feel like we're almost like at a we're in this kind of sam stoza loving loving phase with ash barty <laughs> um so uh, yeah, let's let's see. Let's see. Do you think? What do you think? Do you think is this a flash in the pan? Do you think she's got she capable of winning more more Grand Slams? You know, I didn't even think Clay was uh, you know a particularly her stronger surface. I thought she was more of a a hard hard court player. So. Well, yeah, me too. And I think um, there was a quote uh, that was being banded around that she said last last year. She said, "Oh, every week on Clay is one week nearer to the grass." So you know. She, doesn't perhaps <laughs> naturally like the clay so it is a bit ironic that she's had you know her most successful win on the clay but I did say didn't I um Roland Garros it tends to be I don't know the slam where you get a lot of maiden major title winners so it's actually now the fourth year in a row at Roland Garros that we've had um a woman winning their their maiden slam so we've had Muguruza, Ostapenko, Halep and now Barty and um, I think Barty has the game for all surfaces and could certainly win more slams. You know, she she's actually reached the final all slams in the doubles already. You know, she and I think that extra experience of having been in those doubles finals um, and obviously she's, you know, four years older than Von Drusova has won, you know, bigger tournaments like she won Miami this year. So um, obviously that did help as well in the final, just that experience certainly showed. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Barty... Barty isn't someone you want to face. I mean, interestingly, she didn't actually face a top 10 player to win, you know, the title. So some people have been questioning, you know, the maybe the the quality of the players that she faced with no disrespect to them at all. And I get their point. But at the end of the day, you could only play who's in the draw. And it's, you know, it's it's not her fault that the others, you know, lost early, you know. So she... Um, she, I mean, she beat Anisimova. That was a very topsy turvy semi, wasn't it? The uh, that could have that could have gone either way, perhaps. Um, I feel like it did go either way, <laughs> if, but but uh, yeah, it was like an all or nothing on either side. Very bizarre, um, very very bizarre flow to that match. Um, yeah, I, I I saw. I liked the stat saying uh, Barty beat five Americans mm, in the tournament. Yeah, she. She defeated uh, Pagula in in round one. Daniel Collins, uh, Kenin in the fourth round. Madison Keys, and then yeah, Anna Simova in the uh, semi-finals. So uh, yeah, so yeah, Barty, great stuff. Let's see what she can do. I was just thinking, actually, just going back to the you know the fact you know talking that she didn't perhaps she didn't like clay or you know wouldn't consider herself a clay court player. Well, I think we could obviously say the same of Joe Conter as well, who. Going into the clay court season, you know, weren't, weren't expecting anything, and I think she leaves the clay court season as with with the most, I think, with the most uh, the most wins um, in in the clay season. So, 
Yeah, she had a really good clay season. And, you know, I mean, we were disappointed as British tennis fans of the semi-final performance that she put in against Mondrusva because in both sets she was a break-up. She had set points in the first set and really, yeah, it's frustrating because I feel like she should have won that match or she should have at least won a set. And, you know, she's been in three slam semifinals now and, and not won a single set. And I just... I'm thinking, is she going to be like the Danara Safina of, of slam semifinals? You know, Safina did not win a single set in her, in her finals that she made. And, um, you know, but that's just me being a bit, I don't know, being a moaning mini perhaps. And, you know, I think in well, hindsight, Joe Conta hadn't even won a match at Roland Garros. So how, who are we to criticize her getting not, you know, not being able to reach the final? I, th- I think, I think, you know, for me, it's kind of like, we saw, I think we saw the best of Joe Conta in her quarterfinal against Sloane Stephens. And watching that sort of tennis being played, yes, we got excited because, you know, I don't think there was anyone playing, you know, better tennis, you know, in the tournament than, you know, that performance against Stevens. But unfortunately, she just couldn't bring that sort of level, that game to uh, the match against Von Drusova. It's a shame because, yeah, she served, she had set points in the first set. She served for the second set, but just wasn't able to kind of get a, a completely firm grip on, on the match. And Von, Drus- Von Drusova, very tough, you know, mentally for, for a, a person, uh, you know, a person so young, you know, she has developed a very kind of mature game and was able to kind of handle those pressure situations really well except not in the final but uh, but I'm sure well, I, yeah. that's a bit harsh isn't it? I'm sure you know it was obviously an overwhelming occasion but you know I'm sure in future moments she will be you know be stronger and I'm sure you know she she seems like she's got a lot more substance to her than than than, than might have seemed to be the case in the final um but also yeah as you said you know young player coming through also Anisimova you know she only 17 years of age, she's now actually going to be seeded for Wimbledon. So I think, you know, her game is also very well suited for the grass. So she's going to be one to watch going into the grass court season. And it'll be really interesting, you know, as well to see how Conta does with this, with this run of form going into the grass and, you know, home territory as well. So, you know, Conta herself is now back into the top 20 um, where she belongs. So, (laughs) you know, it's exciting because, you know, we have seen some, you know, new players, verging through and you know a new champion and I think it just shows the depth again of of women's tennis and you know it's perhaps much more intriguing to follow than the men's tour because you've got such a wider range of people who could win and go deep in these tournaments. Hi this is Joel from The Passing Shot Thanks for taking the time to listen to our show. We're supported by every one of our fans in the Passing Shot community. And if you want to become one of them and get the latest updates from your tennis catch-up service, then all you need to do is follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Passing Shot Pod. And if you like what you hear, then why not tell your friends or leave us a rating and subscribe. Thanks for listening. So let's move on to the other results from Roland Garros. So we had a uh, the doubles, Joel. 
did you manage to see any of the doubles finals? I know that only, again, one man and his dog turned up for the mixed doubles final on the Friday. That was unbelievable how, the stadium how few people was. were in. I mean, they obviously, they play the mixed doubles after the men's final at Wimbledon to ensure, you know, that there is, there is a crowd. Uh, but, you know, the, the match between um, Letitia Chan and Ivan Dodig uh, and Pavic and Dabrowski, yeah, just like was absolutely no one there. So it's almost kind of glad we've got the passing shot here to kind of give you the result because I don't think you'll die. You wouldn't have realised it. You wouldn't have realised it otherwise. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we had... Link, can you miss it? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't know what Well, we had Chan and Dodig, and they actually defeated Pavic and uh, Dabrowski 6 1, 7 6 for the title. Um, ladies' doubles, uh, we had Mladenovic, who um, is uh, going out with uh, Dominic Team. So that was kind of, that was quite nice. Cu- couples in the in French Open finals. Uh, Mladenovic and ba- <laughs> Mladenovic and, and Babos came up against the unseeded Chinese pair. Of um, Duan Ying Ying and Zheng Sai Sai, uh, and they defeated uh, they defeated them uh, pretty routinely, I think. And it was you know straight. And we had yeah, uh, like Madenovic has now become the world number one. Uh, so uh, when the rankings come out tomorrow, she will be the ladies doubles, uh, yeah, women's number one. Which I'm sure you know she recently has hired Sasha. Buy in, Bajin, never know how to say his surname, but I'm sure she didn't <laughs> hire him for the purpose of becoming doubles number one because, you know, she was already, I think, what doubles number two or extremely high up in the rankings. But, you know, I wonder if she will now, I don't mm. know, will she start playing less doubles, you know, in order to focus on her singles? It'd be interesting to see what she kind of tries to devote more time to. Um, but I mean, you know, you're number one in the doubles. That's that's an amazing feat, and you don't really want to. No, um, and then the downhill from there. We had a, a, a quite a relative, like names I would not have expected in in the in the men's doubles final. We had Germans Kravietz and Miles uh, win in straight sets over Jeremy Shardy and Martin. Um, the interesting thing about this final was that three of them actually were in a challenger tour final in in Helbron earlier uh earlier this earlier this year um shardy wasn't there but it's just crazy that that a final that a challenger level event was also a grand slam final as well i know i think it was literally like three weeks ago um oh, <laughs> yeah it's, sorry it's andreas sorry. knees joe not miles Apologies. <laughs> pronunciation <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, we did an episode uh, a while back on player pronunciation. So, um, yeah, go back and listen to that and have a laugh <laughs> at us trying to, you know, mess up people's names <laughs> in that one. But, yeah, no, a surprising final, both unseeded. And, yeah, really happy to see Kravitz and Mies, uh, you know, winning a slam from from challenger success to uh, to Grand Slam success within a month. Um, but, yeah, we also had the junior tournament, Um so in the women's, we had the top seed, Leila Annie Fernandez, defeating um, an American, Emma Navarro. So two things of interest here. Uh, Fernandez is Canadian. So will she be another Canadian to watch out for? You know, we've had a resurgence and a rise of young Canadians recently with Andreescu and OJ Aliassime. So, you know, uh, Fernandez has become the fifth Canadian to win a junior slam title. She didn't drop a single set. She dished out four bagels en route to the title, including a six-love, six-love in the quarterfinal. And 
Yeah, she's the first Canadian, I think, since OJ Eliassime to win a junior slam. And he did that in 2016. But also, interestingly, her opponent, Emma Navarro, was actually older than Amanda Inisimova. So, you know, he reached the semis in the, in the, the, the adult, <laughs> the adult draw. So interesting, you know, how it just takes different players, different, you know, times to kind of break through. Um, and Navarro did actually go on to win the girls doubles with uh, American Beck. And in the men's, well, not the men's, the, the boys, I should say, we had a Danish winner, uh, Holger Rune. He's become the youngest Grand Slam junior champion since OJ Aliasim again. And he won in three sets, um, defeating, interestingly, the half-brother of Nicole Vidasova, American Toby Kodat, six love in the third. Nicole Vidasova has a half-brother. <laughs> an essential fact, yeah. And Puccinelli de Almeida and Tarante won the boys' doubles. So, um, yeah, there we have it. And wheelchair doubles as well. So we had the inaugural uh, quad quad wheelchair tournament at Roland Garros and Dylan Alcott, the Australian, he won that. Um, so yeah, first ever Roland Garros quad singles title. He beat David Wagner in three sets to win that one. And they, Wagner and Alcott combined to win the quad doubles. But I realise there's a very um, few players in the, in the quad draw. So in the, in the doubles, you know, tournament. It was just one match, so it's just one match, and that is the final. And the same four players were in the singles as well, so they kind of just play two two matches to win. Um, so it'd be great to see the draws for that expanding, you know, as it kind of gets more and more uh, prominent. And then we also had we had a Brit in the final, Joel of the men's wheelchair single. So Gordon Reed, he lost out to Fernandez, who was the second seed, six one six three in the final. Um, but it's the second time that Gordon made the final at Roland Garros. And I mean, he's already got two slam titles. So, you know, all this hoo-ha about Andy Murray, will he come back? Will he, won't he? We already have a Scott who is, you know, still reaching slam finals that we can cheer on. So yeah, good one for Gordon Reed in this tournament. Um, we had Fernandez and Cuneda winning the wheelchair men's doubles in a match tie break. So exciting finish. And then on the ladies wheelchair tournament, D-Day de Groot uh, of the Netherlands. She, forget the Knoll slam, which, you know, didn't happen this, uh, this with, with him winning Roland Garros. D-Day de Groot has done the de Groot slam. She's won four majors in a row. Uh, so kudos to her. She thrashed Yui Kamiji, 6-1, 6 love in the final. <laughs> and what this is perhaps, you know, we've talked about Burton's and Merton's Joel, but de Groot and Van Koot won the women's wheelchair doubles. Isn't that just the best, you know, rhyming partnership going? Um, De Groot, Van Coot, I love that. Sounds amazing. So, yeah, well done to all the champions at <laughs> yeah, Roland Garros 2019. Let's move on to Brits on Tour now. Uh, away, from, away from the French Open, perhaps the biggest news, Andy Murray news, he's going to play Queens and he's going to play Queens in the doubles with Feliciano Lopez. Yes, exciting. I wonder if his mum had anything to do with that because she loves Feliciano Lopez. <laughs> Deliciano, as she calls him. Um, I mean, I think he's a great person to, um, to team up with. Oh, you know, man. he's like that a, cl- a against, Queen's legend, that, isn't he? That Lopez, final against so. Dimitrov was a f- <laughs> absolutely fantastic final, which I think a lot know, of people kind of were watching and thinking, oh, this yeah. is going to be that good. It's Lopez and Dimitrov, but they absolutely put on a, a classic 
a classic final. Um, but yeah, and Lopez is a very, very solid uh, singles player, but he's also a very solid doubles player as well. Yeah, he's a he won the doubles uh, at the at Roland Garros with Mark Lopez a few years ago, I think. So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they get on. Uh, I'm sure everyone will be pleased to see Andy back in action. I think all the grounds passes and tickets for Queens have already sold out, but I'm sure fans will be, you know, jumping at the chance to see Andy, you know, because we don't know if this could be the last time that, you know, we could see him play. So it's kind of got a, a you and know, that kind I of think, storyline. Well, I was just going to say, and I think well. kind of with um, this kind of appointment, I think it just kind of shows that, you know, he he doesn't want any kind of pressure on the situation. You know, Lopez is very, you know, very capable partner. And I think it's just going to be a very kind of no fuss sort of dynamic um, on court. And it will be interesting to see, you know, how well they do at Queens. Uh, who could they win it? I'm not sure. Who we'll see. But w- could they play? Could they play Wimbledon together? Is that the is that the long t- longer term aim? Maybe. I mean, yeah, he hasn't announced. I think we you know he'll see how it goes at Queens, and then would announce potentially what was uh, you know his plans for Wimbledon are. Um, but yeah, in other news on the grass. Um, We've had the Surbiton Trophy happening this week. So we've had quite a few Brits in action down there. Um, And we've actually had a British champion. Dan Evans has won the tournament, won the challenger. Um, He beat Victor Troitsky, or Troitsky, I think I should say, in the final. Um, And I know they had quite a lot of rain down at Surbiton this week, so it's been a bit disrupted. But uh, yeah, Dan's come through that one. Unfortunately, Paul Judd didn't do so well, did he, Kim? Well, I mean, my, my, well, I know people who were at that match and they said, you know, he, he's, he is pretty good. We asked in our last episode, is he any good? Um, and I think, you know, he is, but he, yeah, he lost in three sets to James Ward in the first round. Um, but I'm, I would imagine he's going to get a wild card into like Wimbledon qualifying, probably not into Wimbledon itself, but to the qualities, I'm sure. Um, but we also had, uh, yeah, James Ward, he made the third round in Surbiton. We had, uh, Dan Evans and Lloyd Glassball. Yeah, they reached the semis in the doubles and also Luke Bambridge, uh, reached the semis in the doubles. Uh, and for the women's tournament, they have a 100k tournament in Surbiton at the same time. Heather Watson made the doubles final. Um, and she also made the quarters in the singles, um, as did Katie Dunn. And they both, um, well, they lost out both to Rabarikova and Alison Riesk, who were actually in the final. And I'm just looking up the result of that now. And it seems that Alison Riesk has won that. So she won that tournament in the end. Um, but yeah, we had a uh, super fan Liz Curran on the ground for us in Surbiton. So let's take a listen and hear what Liz had to say from her week at the tournament. Hi, this is Liz reporting in from the tennis events that have been taking place in Surbiton in southwest London this week. Surbiton has two tournaments going on at the same time. There's an ATP Challenger event for men and an ITF tournament for women. And there are doubles and singles competitions within both those tournaments. Um, it takes place over the first week in June and it's the start of the grass court season. So it's the first opportunity for us to see players playing on grass in the tournaments that lead up to Wimbledon. Surbiton is easily accessible from central London. You get on a train from either Waterloo or Vauxhall and it's about 20 minutes and then when you get out it's about a 15 minute walk to the site which is 
Surbiton Racket and Fitness Club. Tickets range from about £12 for a grounds pass. The first three days you can enter the site um, and access all the courts for £12. After that, they start putting the marquee matches on centre court and they do a reserved seat ticket for that. So the prices go up to like £18, £22, £27 over the week. If you go to this tournament, you will definitely see tennis players that you recognise and you'll also see up and coming players and you'll also see a good range of British players because quite a lot of the British players get wild cards into the tournament. I mean, this week I've seen Dan Evans, Nick Kyrgios, Tanasi Kokonakis, Matthew Ebden, Feliciano Lopez. Last year I saw Jeremy Shardy, who won the competition. Leighton Hewitt's usually there watch, playing doubles and watching his Aussie players. Um, Karlovich was there. Alex Deminor was there. On the women's side, we had Heather Watson this year, Lisiki, Wickmeyer, Alison Risk, um, Katie Dunn. Last year we had Katie Bolter and Harriet Dart. So it's a good range of players, probably from about 50 in the world through to 150 plus some wild cards or qualifiers. It's a really nice site. Um, it's easy to get around all of the courts. There's a lovely catering pavilion which sells homemade food and sandwiches and drinks. Uh, and there's an area of picnic table, picnic ta nice tables, wooden tables outside where you can view court one, sit and have a drink under the sunshade or hide from the rain. Um, clearly weather can be an issue because it's the British summer and we can have boiling hot weather or freezing cold weather or rain or wind. I've had all of those things over the last five days that I've attended the tournament. So I would definitely recommend that if you're going to the tournament, you take layers because it does get cold in the evening. And you, if you're like me, you won't want to miss the last matches that are going on. I like to see the end of the tennis. Um, take sunscreen, take a fleece, take an umbrella. Um, and also, you know, hopefully you'll have a good day. It can be a mix, but hopefully you'll have a good day. Um, and reasons to go and see this tournament. It is the first opportunity we get to see players playing on grass. I love watching grass court tennis and it's such a short season. So it feels like a real treat to get out to Surbiton and see players up close. Um, it's quite affordable, as I've said, but the tickets are not bad, badly priced. You get good sight lines or, you know, on, from all the courts, from the, at the grandstand on court centre court or walking between courts on the outside courts uh, you get to see men and women and it's very friendly both you know players use the same catering area there's lots of volunteers working there and it all feels very informal and casual and intimate actually so I really do recommend this as a as a tournament to go and to go and attend as part of your grass court experience so thank you, Liz, for that. Um, I can certainly attest that Surbiton is a great, great little tournament. So if anyone is ever down that way, it's definitely uh, worth a visit. But Joel, I think it is time for some scoreboard stories. Uh, well, what very interesting scoreboard stories for you. It's actually more to do with order of play and tennis players pulling 
what I like to call double duty. Um, I need to give a shout out actually to uh, Lee. He's been on the show a few times, um, the Twitter account at Tennis on Telly, uh, who alerted me to this fact. And it concerns Janina Whitmire, who was actually due to play. Uh, I don't think you get this every day, but she was due to play both Nottingham and Surbiton on the same day because I think she did. She was she was in Nottingham uh, for qualifying, but she actually did really well in in Surbiton and got to the got to the quarterfinals. Um, so, what do you do in that situation when you know? Do you choose between Nottingham or or do you do you kind of stay in Surbiton? Um, well, what she decided to do was she pulled out of Nottingham qualifying, decided to play in Surbiton, uh, but unfortunately, her decision back kind of backfired on her because she lost her quarterfinal and in Nottingham it actually rained so badly the weather was so bad that the qualifying got postponed to the following day so so I think she could she potentially could have, oh, she potentially could have done both but, um, it does kind of raise the question and I, I don't know if our, any of our listeners know out there you know is it possible do you know any examples of players who have played two tournaments on the same day I don't know. Is that in the rule book? Are you allowed to do? Are you allowed to do that? I'm sure. Well, I don't think you're allowed to now, maybe. But I'm sure at Queens a while back was it Ivan Dodig? He said that you know when he was sort of a few years back, um, you know, struggling to make ends meet. I'm sure he he played two in one day, or um, I'm sure there was a story about him having to yeah like rush between events. I mean, it would only work, wouldn't it, if you're yeah playing tournaments within a reasonable travel distance between but I mean it's it's a bit of a scheduling nightmare but uh yeah typical about the rain maybe she should have um I don't know phoned up the French Tennis Federation (laughs) for some weather advice seeing as they're meteorological experts um they could have told her maybe it was the uh the the French Um, Open organizers I don't know um but um but we also had I know I think we've tweeted about this uh this week is there was a really kind of pointless stat on uh, Roger Federer has closed in on the alphabet slam, Kim. Really, really important. You know, there's the null slam, but there is also the alphabet slam. And, and Federer at the French Open, he defeated Oscar Otter of Germany, I think. And it means that he has defeated every letter of the alphabet starting uh, for a surname in his 1,204 wins, except the letter X. As in, as in surname, yes, has, surname to has to start with the letter, letter X. Not face anyone. A lot of people saying, what about Xavier Melis? He has beaten Melis, <laughs> but the X was obviously his, his first name. So there has been a, there has been a search out for any players that have, that do begin with, um, have a surname <laughs> that do begin with the letter X. And there is one Kim that I found and, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but there is a Chinese player uh, called Xiao Cha. I don't know. X-X-I-X-I-A. Oh, my God. Pronunciation <laughs> fail right there. But, uh, he is around 350-odd in the world. So who knows? Give him a wild chance to Wimbledon. <laughs> or, you know, if Federer wants to go draw. after Connor's record and play some uh, oh, lowly, God. you know, challenger, ty- challenger events in China, I'm sure that sure he can up his his chances of completing yeah. uh, the alphabet slam there was also for you know other pointless stats that people were you know coming up with during Roland Garros 
when Federer defeated Kasper Ruud of Norway, um, Norway became the 58th nation with a player who has lost to Federer. It would be the seventh nation with only one loss to Federer, joining Denmark, El Salvador, Greece, Kuwait, Moldova and Peru. <laughs> this is kind of another level of, uh, I don't know, statistic digging. Federer has at least one win over every nationality that he's faced. Yeah. Um, he's got except a- Joel Zimbabwe. <laughs> And he's, he's never got a, a Zimbabwe one record against Zimbabwe, <laughs> right, completely randomly. Uh, he's he lost to B Black. I'm not sure who. I'm not sure who that is. Is that Cara Black? I was, uh, or relative? But yeah, we're all backing Federer. You know, if if maybe he's not got any more kind of Grand Slams in him, let's let's kind of get him over the line and and get the Alphabet Slam. Kim, let come on. Let's set up a pet- petition to get Federer versus. Federer versus Zhao. Yeah. Let's, that yeah. Let's make that a reality. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure we've got better <laughs> things to, to spend our time on. But yeah, there we go. We'll, we'll see. Another fun scoreboard uh, fact that I loved was, as we mentioned earlier, the Barty Enisimova semi-final, which was so up and down. Um, you know, it was funny how Barty went five love up, didn't she? And then Enisimova then went on a run where she won 10 of the next 11 games. And then Barty won the next seven games. Then Anisimova got two. And then Barty had a, a 5-1 run at the end. So I thought that was pretty... When you put when you write it down and look at it on paper, you think, that's mad. Absolute madness. Um, but yeah, I think... I do love tennis, actually. It does bring us some interesting numerical and linguistic facts. Um, I think with that, let's move on to the wild card. Um, what else has been happening in tennis? Been a little bit of gossip coming out of the French Open. Um, a few eyebrows were raised, Kim, because I don't know if you saw, but Simona Hallett was sitting in Juan Martin Del Potro's box, uh, box, and everyone, obviously, <laughs> all the gossips on Twitter were saying, "Is Del Potro and Halep is is that a thing? Is that a is that, is that going on?" Well, she had to wait, I think, like 20 minutes for um, him to come out of his press conference. Uh, there were some pictures of her waiting around, but I don't know. Maybe that sparked it off. Who knows? Um, but also, talking of relationships amongst tennis players, Gem's Life, the epic Instagram account of Gail Monfils and Alina Svitolina, has disappeared people have been saying that you know they've been also deleting pictures of each other off their personal instagram so is it a case of gem's death and not gem's life it you know remains to be seen but they were they were a fun a fun couple that was kind of it on the kind of gossipy relationship sort of stuff forbes announced that serena williams is the richest self-made woman and actually she made history becoming by becoming the first athlete to make the forbes list of yeah, the world's richest self-made women, and uh, according to Forbes, uh, the 23-time uh, Grand Slam champion has amassed a fortune of 117, 177 million pounds slash 224 million dollars. And although you might think you know a lot of that may come from like prize money or whatever, actually she is quite a, an astute businesswoman and. Um, has been kind of lending money to you know startups i guess you know through all of her career apparently in the past five years alone she's invested in 34 startup business and yeah has now got this title as yeah richest self-made woman 
Yeah, and they also said that 60% of her investments have gone to companies led by women or people of colour. So um, most people probably wouldn't know what Serena's been, you know, doing off court with uh, with her investments. So, yeah, fair play to her. And it's good to see that she's uh, trying to help out fellow um, fellow women, people of colour, etc., and making a difference. Who knows? Maybe that's what she'll do after she retires. Well, and also Venus, you know, has her clothing line, um, her her interior design business, if I'm correct. So both of them have have always been, you know, quite active, I think, with their off-court kind of pursuits, um, which has probably helped them regain, you know, retain some longevity in in tennis. You know, it's not purely tennis. You know, they've got other focuses and ambitions and things, you know, for when they do finally retire. But um, hopefully that won't be just yet uh but joel i think that brings us to a close isn't it for our roland garros catch up um it's been a good tournament it's been interesting lots of debates with the scheduling and ticketing debacle poor weather forecasting um hopefully the roof will resolve any of those uh quandaries if they crop up next year um who knows what's going to happen in 2020 will it be a 13th for rafa will team finally you know, th- will it be three finals uh, in a row and third time lucky for him? We shall see. Um, if anyone is a bit kind of, ah, that Roland Garros is finished, um, we do have uh, an episode that was released the other day focusing on Federer and Nadal and their epic rivalry. And that was with uh, Dan Rubenstein, who um, has hosted a really brilliant podcast um, series on the rivalry. So um, if anyone wants to have a listen to that to you know pass the time between now and uh you know Wimbledon <laughs> then uh, there's plenty of of things to to check out we just want to say also thank you to everyone who's kind of interacted with us also on social media being part of the passing shot community it's great to it's great to hear from our listeners and, and kind of generate uh generate debate on 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 Twitter so uh thank you for that um we'll be back next time uh it'll be well we'll be going into the grass court season we've got a few special episodes lined up as well we've got some high profile some high profile guests coming onto the show that you'll hear more about in due course but for now uh thanks for listening and goodbye Thanks for taking the time to listen to our show. We're supported by every one of our fans in the Passing Shot community. If you want to become one of them and get the latest updates from your tennis catch-up service, then all you need to do is follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at Passing Shot Pod. And if you like what you hear, then why not tell your friends or leave us a rating and subscribe? Thanks for listening.